and welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm Larry Kamer. The Deep Dive is a uh, in-depth discussion on some of the most important issues facing Napa County and wine country. On our program, we try to present insights and stories that you might not hear anywhere else. We originate from the studios of KVON in Napa. Show airs every Thursday at 9 o'clock. And you can always listen to past programs on our website at kvon.com. We are especially happy to hear from you and welcome your suggestions on future discussions and possible guests. You can email us at deepdiveshow at windownmedia, W-I-N-E, windownmedia.com, uh, on Twitter and Instagram at deepdiveshow, and please like us on our Facebook page, uh, Deep Dive Show. If you're interested in some of the past conversations, you can hear them all at kvon.com. If you missed our conversation last week, uh, we were discussing the second anniversary of the Pathway Home shooting in Yachtville, which happened on March 9th. We also had a very informative conversation about whether the bottom is falling out of the recycling market. So head on over to the website and listen to that in previous episodes. Today, we're going to be talking about the most timely issue imaginable, and that is COVID-19 or the coronavirus from a global, uh, national, and for the purposes today, very focused on the local level. Uh, my guests are Dr. Karen Relucio, who is the Napa County Public Health Officer, and Dr. Amy Harold, who is the medical director of the Queen of the Valley uh, Medical Center in Napa. Uh, doctors, welcome. Good morning. Nice to have you here. Let's get right into the conversation. Um, as we are recording this program, it feels like America is basically shutting down. We are canceling major events. Schools are canceling the rest of their calendars. We have states of emergency. Uh, the president announced a new travel ban last night. Conventions and business meetings are being canceled. People are being told not to sit too close to each other in, in restaurants. Um, and as, as one reporter uh, put it in one of my morning, one of my millions of morning newsletters, um, you know, it's like yesterday is the day America shut down. So we are in the midst of some fairly dramatic movement. Um, uh, you know, surrounding the, the, the COVID-19 outbreak. And I'm particularly struck by how diffuse and kind of confused the response is at the top, at the federal level, when you compare it to, say, September 11th, or even Ebola or Zika. Um, there has been this unfortunate tendency to want to call this the Chinese virus or to blame it on, on a place. And in fact, we should be looking to China on the remarkable progress they've made in containing this virus. I was talking to, to Dr. Harold before the show. Um, in late January, they were diagnosing something like 3,000 cases a day in China. Yesterday, they diagnosed 24, just six weeks later. And understandably, they... You can take a lot more draconian steps when you have an authoritarian government, but it does feel like we are following more of the um, Italian model of waiting awfully long and, and running to play catch up. So let me start with you, uh, Dr. Relucio. Can you summarize where we are with coronavirus and what steps you 
and other officials are taking here locally. Yes, so and um, just to talk about the difference between this response and other responses, it has been a really uh, dynamic situation. Uh, what we have seen in California is that um, we are seeing uh, counties where there is community transmission of the virus, with Santa Clara County being the epicenter in California, um, along with surrounding counties such as Contra Costa, San Francisco, um, and um, San Mateo County, and uh, Solano County, where there's community transmission, all, all, and also uh, Sacramento. Um, so um, there has been a, a sea change as of last night uh, with uh, the California Department of Public Health uh, director and health officer um, uh, issuing a directive that any uh, non-essential mass gatherings of over 250 people uh, be canceled or postponed and um, any mass gatherings that are non-essential of more than 10 people who are at risk of complications of COVID-19 disease uh, be canceled. So this is a pretty, um, this is a sweeping um, change uh, that just happened last night. And the rationale for that is that um, the disease knows no borders. We have multiple jurisdictions that share healthcare systems. So it's a matter of time uh, where it is going to go into our community. And uh, so we really need to protect our healthcare systems because they are frontline. Um, and we don't want to be in the position where we have to make some really drastic decisions on rationing medical care because the system is so overwhelmed with illness. And isn't that the, the priority right now is not so much... Um, you know, we've kind of lost the, or we're losing the battle of it spreading from person to person, but isn't the larger focus to keep the medical system from becoming absolutely overwhelmed or ineffective? That's correct. Yes. Um, so I think that, um, by, I just want to kind of back up on how, um, you know, how this uh, epidemic was handled in China. They started implementing these community mitigation strategies when there was already widespread outbreak. And um, when you start doing that, you have to do far more drastic measures. So not only canceling mass gatherings, but also school dismissals, um, shutting down commerce. Well, it even went further. I mean, yeah. you, had, you could not enter a public place without getting your temperature taken, even your own apartment building. Yeah. And, you know, they set up these fever clinics all over the place where you'd be met by a, a doctor or medical worker head to toe protected, take your temperature, take your white blood, your white blood cells, even they, I guess they have a fast version of a CAT scan. And if you're, if you're symptomatic, you go right into isolation. You don't go home. I mean, you talk about drastic. Um, some would call it drastic. Some would call it effective. Yeah. I, I think, um, you know, I think that what we've seen in California is that the areas where there's community transmission, eventually it's going to be here, and it might be already here. And I think that part of the issue is that we've had limitations in testing. So first of all, you know, it's pretty amazing that these other countries can test tens of thousands of patients, whereas here, um, you know, initially the testing was only done at the Centers for Disease Control. So therefore, this led to very restrictive testing. 
And then there's been slow expansion into the state public health lab and local public health labs having the capacity to test, but they're only getting a few hundred kits, and you know, and that that just limits the number of tests. There has been rollout for, um, um, you know, a private labs such as or clinical labs such as Quest or LabCorp to do testing, but then there's only enough kits for to test a few thousand patients when potentially you have you know, millions. Many, millions of people that have right. influenza-like illness or upper respiratory illness at the same time. Yeah, uh, this is the first um, mass outbreak, or now I guess it's officially a pandemic, um, where testing seems to be the exception, not the norm, because we don't have we don't have the tests. Doctor Harold, can you talk a little bit about the perspective from uh, from the hospital point of view and Dr. Lucia was talking about the the problem or the threat of overwhelming the medical system. What are you doing to prepare for that and to kind of expand as the as the uh, pandemic expands? Sure. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I, I think that part of the um, healthcare system issues that we're seeing right now, especially in Napa, we had our first. Um, "Quote unquote wave when we had folks from the Diamond Princess cruise ship come to uh, Queen of the Valley at the request of the federal government. Um, we no longer have any patients that are tested positive, but what we're seeing in our emergency room for current state is that um, we are getting a lot of folks from the community that are trying to come in and get testing and our capabilities are stretched pretty thin with that. We just don't have the test kits available as Dr. Relucio alluded to. Uh, we have prioritization for people that are very, very ill to make sure that they're getting treated appropriately and for folks that are at very high risk um, that have had exposure because the state of testing um, in Napa County right now is we just don't have enough test kits. We're hoping that changes soon. Um, we've been working collaboratively with the county, with Ole Health, with Kaiser to look at options for once we have test kits that are more widely available, how can we make it easier for folks in the community to get tested? Because um, we can't do it in the emergency room and, and we've been getting a lot of calls and people are upset and we understand that they're afraid. We just don't have the Test. capability to do it. Yeah, We don't have the tests. Um, we're also looking at ways where we can start running those tests ourselves in-house, but that's several weeks away that we would be able to do that. So, And doesn't the test take a while to, to, to generate results? It does currently because it has to be couriered to um, state facilities or um, the CDC in some cases or the commercial facilities, even when Quest does test. They don't test on site. They can't collect the specimens at the Quest lab in Napa. Um, and once they get those kits, it has to be couriered to their central testing site. So nothing's done locally, and even just transporting with overnight shipping, that adds a day to your testing time. So we're seeing if we can do it in Richmond, about 48 hours, and if it's gone through Quest, it can take three to five days currently. Now, speaking of looking into the future, um, let me ask both of you, how long, paint a picture for me, how long do you realistically expect we will be living with coronavirus uh, in this community or the threat of coronavirus in this community? I would say that this response could go for a year. Uh, and this is just based on my experience with 
managing 2009 H1N1, where our response went on for nine months, there was a vaccine at six months into the response. What we're seeing here is we have a vaccine that has not is still under development, and it's projected uh, by um, um, NIH that they might have a vaccine in 12 to 18 months. Right. Um, so it's a matter of just you know um, seeing the disease go through the population um, and play and then, out and play out, play itself out. So um, so I think we're we're in for a marathon. This is not a sprint. You know, I wanted to add to what Amy was talking about with lab testing. The other thing that is an issue is that there are these infection control recommendations that, uh, in order to protect healthcare workers, which you know include wearing an N95 respirator, gloves, gown, and eye shield. I, and um, you know, a lot of outpatient clinics or doctors' offices don't have that personal protective equipment. It also requires an airborne isolation room or a, an isolated room. And uh, we're in an area, we're, we're at a time where we have shortages of personal protective equipment. So um, we're trying to come up with some strategies to do testing that minimizes risk to healthcare workers and also helps to use less personal protective equipment. And Probably not helped by people thinking they need to hoard them in 95 masks yeah. at home. And what we've seen in the hospital is um, even before any cases came to California that were recognized when we heard of the outbreak in China is when we started preparing, um, just knowing that the uh, epidemics have no borders in the in the current state of the world. Air, airline travel, the fact that China is such a manufacturing center and a lot of businesses are located there, and that Northern California is such a popular tourist destination, um, and it's a popular tourist destination for um, Asian citizens. So we we knew that it was only a matter of time before you know at least San Francisco we would be seeing an outbreak there. So we've been preparing. Um, we had masking stations set up at the front door of the hospital and asked people if you have, which still is in effect, if you have a fever, if you have a cough, um, we want those folks to put on a mask when they go in to minimize any risk of spread from a cough or a sneeze. But what we were seeing is people grabbing our boxes of masks at the front of the hospital and taking off with them, and we've gone through two to three times the amount of masks that we normally do. In this period, number one, because we're using more, but we're just seeing them walk out of our lobbies when we're trying to protect healthcare workers and vulnerable people that are in the hospital. So your recommendation on masks, uh, and again, I don't think we can talk about this really basic, simple information enough, is what? Do, do people need to be walking around wearing, wearing masks? Do I need a mask if I get on a bus or a plane? When, when is a mask appropriate and who should have them? Yeah, so uh, walking around with masks is not going to be helpful to the wearer. The, the, pur the purpose of having a, a surgical mask is to minimize the spread of a respiratory droplet with a cough or sneeze. And there's like, you know, when, when somebody coughs or sneezes, it, it disperses several feet and you have lots of virus. But um, in the situation where we're talking about shortage of supplies, the best way to prevent spread of disease is to stay away from, stay away from people while you're sick. Um, I think there's um, 
We call it the hierarchy of controls of infection control, meaning uh, stay away, um, you know, it's, it's, it's controlling the source. So the mask falls like further down in the hierarchy. hierarchy it's kind of a of placebo, controls. right? I mean, yeah. you might think you're, you're getting, you're doing something for yourself, but you're probably just denying somebody a mask who really needs one. That's correct. And uh, the mask is nice. I, I've used this example before, but I operate in, I'm a surgeon and when I wear a mask in the operating room, it's not to protect me from the patient's um, cooties, so to say. It's to protect them. To use them, a medical term. To use the medical term that everyone <laughs> understands. Yeah. Um, it's to protect them from me and any droplet or any um, bacteria that can live in, in anybody's nose and mouth. And so it's the same concept that applies to the public with masks. You're not necessarily wearing it to protect yourself. It, it protects you from overt splashes and, and things like that. But as far as the spread of the virus goes, if you're the one that's sick, that's when that mask can have the potential to protect a lot of other people. If you're healthy, it doesn't have a whole lot of benefit to you. And what they've also seen is... Um, some people are wearing it, and I've seen tips on the on, online that you wear it to avoid touching your face. But so many people touch it to rearrange it and to reposition it and to take it off and put the same one back on. And so then you've been touching that mask a lot and then putting it on your face, and you have a lot more potential for contamination if you're the healthy one. So it's it, if you're sick, I think it's a great idea to wear that mask. Another really basic question, how long does this virus live kind of in an open environment? If somebody sneezes and gets droplets all over this table, how long do I have to be careful about, about that environment? Um, I believe there was a recent study that showed that it could be like three to five days. Really? Yeah. Um, it just came out. Um, and it, there's so much information that's coming out at the same time that it's so hard to keep up. But I believe that's what I saw. One of the, speaking of new information, I saw Dr. Fauci, you know, who's the head of infectious disease control in, uh, in the United States, yesterday was testifying uh, before Congress and said that the COVID-19 is 10 times more lethal than the seasonal flu. Are there other things that we're discovering about this that are surprising or disturbing? That's a good question. I think, um, you know, I think a lot of our answers on how uh, how deadly this disease is is going to be, um, you know, determined at pretty much at the end of the pandemic. Um, so, we'll know after we're all better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's how it worked with H one N one. So in the beginning, usually, uh, you know, the beginning of a pandemic. Um, you're actually biasing testing towards people that are really sick. So then in the beginning, the case fatality rate looks really high. But then as the disease goes through the population and your denominator gets bigger and bigger and bigger, that case fatality rate goes down. You get more accurate Yes, results. you get more accuracy. Mm -hmm. I think another surprising aspect of this particular um, virus is that children seem to be spared from becoming symptomatic. Right. That's not to say necessarily that they aren't carriers of the virus. I, I don't know because I don't think testing's been as widespread, but um, children uh, in seasonal flu, it tends to affect the young and the elderly. And in this one, it's, it's more affecting um, those with advanced age or underlying heart or lung disease and kids are for the most part staying healthy. So that's a good surprise. 
That's a good surprise. I thought I'd give us some good news in here. Because we tend to, we, we do tend to look at, um, either end of the kind of immunocompromised spectrum, right? If you're really old, really young, or if you have HIV or tuberculosis or something like that. And I was struck by that too, that, that thankfully, at least so far, this has been affecting, has not been affecting kids. Unfortunately, it has been affecting, I think most of the fatalities have been what people in their like eighties and and higher, right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So I want to go back to this question of testing. You know, the um, Cleveland Clinic announced yesterday that it has developed a test that will return results in eight hours um, as opposed to a week, um, as is, seems to be the current practice. But the national picture on testing is not particularly reassuring. Do we expect it to get better? I mean, you've both indicated that we're at a disadvantage because we can't test. And... Dr. Relusio, if I understand you correctly, you're saying we may not, by the time we get to the test, this, this whole epide- or the pandemic may have played out. So where are we in the testing progress? Well, I, I wouldn't say that, but I should, I think, maybe you're talking I about think, the vaccine. Yeah, yeah. it's the vaccine. Um, I think the testing will get better. So, you know, the commercial tests are up and running right now, but at this time, they also have to validate all their uh, results with the CDC, which slows down the process. So, once they're done with that validation, I think they were they are going to be able to scale up. And then the other thing that we're hoping to see is the relaxation of the infection control. Uh, requirements uh, for healthcare workers um, and the spacesuits. Yeah, the, the spacesuits. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, so I know that you know um, Cal OSHA, which uh, which is uh, we you know is our regulatory body in California on anything around um, you know infectious disease that's aerosol transmitted. They were supposed to issue guidance uh, that uh, states that you don't need to use a negative pressure room. And we've been told that preliminarily, but that hasn't come out yet. We're still waiting for it. Um, and there are some jurisdictions that just decided, because there's so much community spread, that they, they just decided to implement it on their own. And I'm probably on my way there, just because, um, you know, I think, and, and Amy has been waiting for me to say that, uh, I'm, we're on their way there because it's just, it's prohibitive, and we don't have enough N95 respirators, and I'd rather... Uh, reserve N95 respirators for people that are do for healthcare workers that are doing aerosol generating procedures mm-hmm. and go down the droplet precautions mm-hmm. um, because really uh, some of the CDC guidance that's put out there is not practically implementable. Mm-hmm. So, Dr. Harold, we've made some some medical news here today. I'm thrilled to hear this. Um, I've I've been texting poor Dr. Relucio probably every day to twice a day. Are we on droplet precautions yet? And, and what that means is when we're doing, it, it's not quite as much the spacesuit that, that's uh, media-generated images of, of the CDC, um, but we do have the specialized respirators and eye protection, um, gowns and gloves. But when it moves to, that's for respiratory and contact precautions. Um, when we move to droplet, which is we're protecting ourselves from droplets and coughs and sneezes and contact because if any of those droplets land on surfaces, we want those to be clean too. But it really is, that's where Washington State has gone, and that is the World Health Organization recommendations for this after studying it in Asia, in Europe, that droplet precautions seem to be um, perfectly um, good for preventing spread of this disease and transmission. So 
what we're trying to do is get to that place because it opens up a lot more rooms when we go back to your original question of what does this look like when a lot of people start to get sick. Right now, we're a bit hamstring. We only have a few rooms that have that negative pressure designation. And when we're doing procedures like intubating someone or putting a scope into their lungs to take a look, those are things that generate aerosolized droplets. So we want to save the negative pressure rooms for that. Or we still have tuberculosis in the community. We still have measles. We have things that truly are respiratory born. We want to use our limited number of rooms that protect us from those diseases. Um, for appropriate cases. All right, we're going to take a, uh, a short break. Um, we are on the other side. We'll come back to our conversation about COVID-19, the coronavirus here in Napa County with uh, Dr. Karen Relucio, who is the county's public health officer, and Dr. Amy Harold, who is the chief medical officer at Queen of the Valley Medical Center. Uh, I'm Larry Kamer, and this is The Deep Dive. Welcome back to The Deep Dive. I'm Larry Kamer. We're talking about the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, the coronavirus. Uh, we've been talking about a variety of issues, including um, testing, what people should know, uh, the state of play, especially here in Napa County. We're talking with Dr. Karen Relucio, who is the Chief Public Health Officer of Napa County, uh, and Dr. Amy Harold, who is the Chief Medical Officer at Queen of the Valley Hospital. I should have done this at the very beginning, but I really want to thank you for taking the time to be here. Uh, I know you must be incredibly busy, stressed, and tired, um, but I appreciate that you recognize that a big part of public health is communication. And so... Um, I know the, that the folks who will listen to the show today and who will, who will download it and listen to it later, very appreciative, as, as am I. So thank you. Um, one of the things that we do not hear a lot about, uh, you know, and yes, we have to focus on the big stuff uh, and containing a pandemic, but uh, we talk about how a lot of these cases resolve on their own. Um, Unfortunately, and as somebody who has been sick for the better part of the last week, um, it's still pretty miserable when you've got the flu or a cold or, you know, even bad allergies. We, we don't seem to talk enough about that. What is your advice to people who have to care for people who are sick in their in their households? So, um, yeah, for, for people... Caring for those who are sick. I mean, lots of frequent hand washing. Um, and if you have a like a mask or a barrier, you could put on the person you're taking care of. Disinfecting frequently touched surfaces, um, you know, such as light switches, doorknobs, you know, counters, you know. Um, so, and then you know, basically sleep in separate rooms if you can. I mean, um, you know, I know that there are some family situations where there's overcrowding and they're at a disadvantage. But if you do have the ability to do that, um, that's the best way, you know, to, to prevent spread. But I should note that uh, Dr. Harold and I are both 
are each applying hand sanitizer as we're talking. I think it was when I said I had been sick for the last few days. I'm, I haven't been sick for a couple of days. You said you were sick the last few days, so I promptly pulled that bottle out of my bag. And now Dr. Lucio is following him. suit. So anyway, oh, yeah. so model the, model these doctors' behaviors, and you can't use the hand sanitizer too much. Um, so Governor Newsom has said, uh, no events over 250 people. Um, Mayor Breed in San Francisco yesterday, yesterday said no events over 1,000 people. I'm assuming that the governor's word will trump hers. Um, what is the status of public gatherings here in Napa, and when do you expect that we will be making a decision about things like schools and school closings? Yeah, so and, um, I want to outline what that's, it's called community mitigation uh, strategies, or these are community social distancing strategies. So because of the governor's declaration and the directive from the California Department of Public Health to uh, cancel non-essential mass gatherings of greater than 250 people, we are following that. We, you know, we are not going to go against that. This is, this is something that is a statewide directive. Um, so, you know, that that means, you know, cancellation of sporting events, festivals, uh, concerts. Big business um, meetings, conventions. Yes, conventions. You know, in terms of what it means for schools, it doesn't mean uh, dismissal of schools. But what, what it could mean is uh, canceling assemblies, uh, intramural sporting events. Um, you know, we have, I know one, you know, like, a couple of our schools are going to do a play that's going to attract probably 400 people, so that's going to get canceled. So there's a lot that a lot of impacts that this has. It's disruptive either way, isn't it? Because you, if you cancel school, then you've got, you know, the kids still need to be looked after. They still need to be educated. They still need to be kept busy, uh, and they most importantly, they need to be kept well. Um, but if you don't cancel school, of course, it's every parent's nightmare that you're sending your kid into a into a big Petri dish, right? Well, I, I think I, I want to clarify that this uh, this order does not mean school dismissal. Um, it it just um, so school instruction will still continue. It's just the non-essential assemblies and and sporting events and you know plays and career fairs those will be canceled and i think um the reason why we don't tend we don't want to really move on to school dismissal right away because it's so societally disruptive so you dismiss school um and then all of a sudden you have parents that can't get to work um which could really impact our healthcare workforce um and you know all the people that make the community safe I think the other thing is that there's out-of-school social mixing. So you dismiss school, and that, what does that mean? Oh, the you know the kids go play the kids, together. They kids play together. They go to the mall together. They um, do video they, games together. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that doesn't necessarily solve the problem, especially when we know that COVID nineteen doesn't doesn't tend to infect kids uh, as much as it does people that are sixty plus. Right. Is that heartening to you that that it is not affecting children so far? It makes me so happy because the worst nightmare for community mitigation is school dismissal, and I'd rather not go there if I don't have to. I've been reading about this situation in Westchester County in in New Rochelle, New York, where they have all these complicated rules that if you live in the kind of containment zone uh, but go to school in another part of the, the community outside of the containment zone, you can go to school. But if you live outside and go to a school in the containment zone, you can't go to school. 
which I have to believe is so incredibly disruptive uh, to parents, to teachers, you know, to the whole school system. Yeah, we haven't had to implement such a containment zone here, and I don't believe any community in California has done that. But is it fair to say you are working closely with Dr. Nemko and the and the school officials to kind of are those conversations happening like on a daily basis, on an hourly basis? Well, not hourly, but, um, you know, probably every other day. You um, have each other's home phone numbers, and, no doubt. Uh, yeah, cell phone numbers. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I got texted by one of them at six in the morning. Uh, so and I, you know, and I had a conversation with Dr. Nemco um, as I was getting ready for work. So, yes, definitely. We have each other in speed dial just much, much like Dr. Harold and I have each other in speed dial as well. So I want to, Dr. Harold, I want to talk a little bit about what you've been seeing at the Queen and kind of your outlook for where this goes over the next few months. Sure. Um, and what we've seen at the Queen, um, really, we've had the ER inundated with worried phone calls um, and, and people that don't understand why we can't do the testing. And we don't want to make people feel like we don't. Um, care or that they're not getting treated appropriately. But we do also do the routine general medical screening exam. We check your temperature. We check um, for any symptoms. We do, you know, all the basic vital signs and physical examination. And that's not to say that everybody needs to get tested. And that's really hard for some people to understand when they're scared. And we understand that. Um, But our ER workers are seeing a lot of that Um, As far as community spread, we haven't seen a lot of it to date. I'm expecting that to change, but to date in the hospital, we haven't. Our folks that we were investigating um, a few weeks ago were from the cruise ship, and we haven't had any. We've had a few inpatients that we've tested, um, but we haven't had anybody that we've been caring for in Napa County that, that we've had come up as a community spread yet. Here's what I'm not understanding, though, about the testing. It's, okay, you get tested, you test positive. There's no vaccine. So what is that? what does that really do for you to test positive as opposed to just stay home, isolate yourself, drink plenty of fluids, get bed rest, you know, all those things that, that you recommend that we all know we should do in the case of, of any flu? Yeah, I could talk about the public health interventions that um, are – you know, put forth when someone tests positive for COVID-19. Uh, so anyone that tests positive for COVID-19 is put under an isolation order. So it's a mandatory order that's legally enforceable. Um, and they're put on that for at least 14 days or until their subsequent tests are positive. But that's in, at, in their homes, right? Yes. We don't put them in isolation. Like in China, you see the, they've got these gigantic, you know, isolation centers. We're, we don't have that model. No, we they they're isolating in their homes. We haven't gotten there yet, you know, where we've had to do that. Um, other than the fact that those the Travis Air Force Base, uh, no, the Princess, they were isolated in the Queen under federal isolation order. So um, that that's that's different. Um, but if we were to have a you know a case here, then they would be put under isolation order, and their close contacts would be put under a quarantine order. Um, which, uh, you know, we're, we're, um, the, those that are in contact with a confirmed case would have to stay at home. Um, they can't go to work. They can't go to the grocery store um, for 14 days. So that's, 
So it's more public health measures to restrict movement. Do you, do you foresee this playing out in a way where we would need to have more facilities like the Travis facility or utilizing facilities like at the Queen where people are being isolated or quarantined, not in their homes, but in a medical facility? We have made it pretty clear at the Queen that we're not um, an isolation facility. It, it was new when it happened the first time, and the folks from the Diamond Princess, um, there were many hospitals in the Bay Area that were asked, do you have negative pressure rooms? If so, we need your help. At this point, and because we're seeing it more widespread in the community, we are not able to accept anyone just because they tested positive and put them in isolation. We frankly don't have the space, especially given the restrictions on how much personal protective equipment you need, what kind of negative pressure. We need to save those for people that are sick. So the hospital is not going to be used as an isolation unit for folks who are well or who have very mild symptoms but happen to test positive, which so far seems to be well, the majority of and cases. And it, it's not as if in the face of this pandemic, people aren't getting other kinds of illnesses or needing right. surgeries or Heart emergency. Heart still yeah, happen. Exactly. Car accidents still happen. Exactly. So, um, how, so you're talking about kind of this, this protection of frontline healthcare workers, kind of head to toe protection. You've indicated Dr. Lucio that, that, that may be eased up just a bit, um, for all but the most, the most frontline of those workers. Right. Um, and have we seen cases of workers getting sick? We have not seen it here, but we've ha we've seen workers that have been exposed in other counties. But most of that was because, like for example, um, the first uh, case of community transmission that happened in a Solano County residence that was then transferred to uh, Sacramento County to be cared for in the UC Davis system. Um, they you know, didn't know she had COVID-19, um, and um, what had happened is that there's over 100 healthcare workers that were exposed. Wow. That's, that's A, terrible for them because it just feels terrible, and B, what a blow to the system, too. Yeah, I mean, they, they basically furloughed so many workers that that hospital in uh, Solano County had to go on diversion. Hmm. They couldn't take any patients. You can't take care of people if you don't have nurses, doctors, and right. all of the support staff we need every day at the hospital. The, our EVS workers um, that clean our rooms, honestly, are just the heart and soul of the hospital. We depend on them. And so if your um, EVS, environmental health workers are, are compromised, then that can really cripple a hospital. And are they outfitted head to toe? The environmental workers? Yep. Anybody that has exposure um, has to take the appropriate precautions. Yeah. These guys are kind of heroes. You know, I mean, talk about unsung heroes. These are these are folks who are going into known contaminated areas and cleaning them up for the rest of us. Yep. Yeah. I, I mean, we, <laughs> we tend to overlook some of the most important stuff as we're focused on the big numbers and the political overtones and all these other things that we've been talking about. And yet there's hundreds of people doing thousands of things every day that are probably doing more to keep this under control than, you know, than, than we can imagine. Let me ask you, uh, Dr. Harold, if somebody thinks they have the coronavirus, what should they do? Should they come to the hospital? No. 
Well, if you're sick and short of breath, we're, we're telling people, come to the emergency room if you would come to the emergency room anyway. If you can't breathe, you come to the emergency room so we can take care of you. Anyway. Anyway. Um, if you think you've been exposed, if you don't, we do appreciate a phone call so that we know ahead of time or the second you get to the front door of the hospital that you put on a mask, and we, we will provide those. Um, but for folks that either have mild symptoms or what we called the worried well, you feel well, but you're concerned about it, um, we recommend people call their physicians. Um, I, I did speak with some of our community physicians. It's easy to spread updates on what we're doing in the county and what our, especially our testing capabilities to my doctors in the hospital. I have a bit of a captive audience. But what about the family practice doctors and internal medicine doctors taking care of the community? I wanted to call all of those groups and and talk to them about what we have. And I was really impressed with one of our um, concierge practice groups that provide internal medicine. They're having all their patients call. They're doing a telephone um, consultation first, understanding symptoms. If you have respiratory symptoms, they're um, having their patients come at certain dedicated hours. So but is it just call and check in with us? Call and if, check if, in. If you're even, if you have even a suspicion. Call and check in first, because if you think you might have it, we want to make special arrangements so you don't expose other people or other healthcare workers. So um, the the first thing is to call their their doctor, and if you don't have a doctor. Um, Queen of the Valley is one of a 51 hospital healthcare system, Providence St. Joseph Health. The very first community acquired case in the country was in Everett, Washington at a Providence hospital. So we had the benefit of having a 51 hospital, very large system, the largest in the, the West, um, be able to jump on this and have a system dedicated response. They came up with an online chatbot that's free to use for the public and it's front facing on the website. But it's a symptom analyzer, and you can go in, and it has. I did it the other day. Um, I get after allergies. you touched your face after for the I 21st after you told time. me you were sick for the last week. No, um, no, no, during the last week. No, I'm just teasing. But, oh, in days but of the last week, I did get on it and check my own. I, I had a little bit of allergies, and I just wanted to see how it worked. But it's free and it's um, public facing, and it interactively tells you you have mild symptoms, you're fine. Um, or you should call a health care provider, or you should go to the emergency room. So people can get on the website and look at that, too. I have to say, I'll give a shout-out, because my wife and I are Kaiser members, and um, she called the advice nurse at Kaiser the other day, and he was incredibly helpful. And just, you know, I mean, just the fact that he had, he was listening and had, and it was expressing concern, uh, it, it, you know, it kind of made the whole thing uh, go down a little easier. And again, I think so much of so much of containing a public health crisis is good information. You know, it's not necessarily medical intervention. It's just giving people information about what they can do, what they should do, where they can go to get help. This is what to me has been so frustrating about this, um, you know, this uh, bowl of spaghetti that we've seen from the federal government, you know, just very confused, um, people contradicting each other, even contradicting themselves. You know, that's not particularly helpful to somebody who's sick and who doesn't really care about the politics, right? Just tell me where I can go. So let me ask you both that question. Where should people go if they want information from County Public Health or from the Queen? Well, for um, County Public Health, it's www.countyofnapa.org. And um, in the front page, it says coronavirus. There's a banner. 
Um, it's red, I think. Well, it's not red anymore. Oh, all right. Yeah. I think it was red last time I looked at it. Okay. Yeah, it's, it has the public health shield. Okay. With, uh, but on the County of Napa website, it's yeah. prominent. Yeah. Yeah, it's, in the, it's, it's front page, the first thing that pops up. And so, so for pe- and it's it, it, bilingual, I assume? Yes, and it's updated every day. Every day. Yeah. And so for the Queen, you have a diagnostic tool? We do, and it's on the, the Providence website. Um, but if you go to thequeen.org and you can uh, link to um, our overarching health systems website at Providence, and we have, I believe ours is red, the banner for uh, COVID-19 updates and you can follow through to the chat bot for that. Um, and if Dr. Relucio's okay with it, maybe I'll send her the link so that can go on the, the county website too if people want to have that as a tool. I was trying to open it in my, I hate to say this, the browser that we use in the county. <laughs> it wasn't working. Not as robust browser. as it should be? Yeah. Well. well, it's because we don't get, well, um, we don't have the most updated version of Microsoft Edge or whatever. <laughs> we'll, have to, we'll have to have a word with Mr. Tran about that. Uh, all right. So any, um, how, especially from, from each of your perspectives, are you reaching out to uh, more disadvantaged communities, uh, maybe people who don't have easy access to the Internet, uh, people for whom English may not be their first language? What are we doing to to especially make sure they're they're getting the information they need? Yeah, so we've been working with our um, community organized uh, or community organizations active in disasters or COAD, um, and um, you know we're working with um, you know we have a, uh, so they're helping with you know the distribution of information uh, with non traditional means. This is the so collection that, of nonprofits, nonprofits. agencies, yeah. right, collaborating on emergency. Yes. Issues. And then the other thing that we are uh, going to be working on is um, working with our community emergency response teams to help, you know, maybe just hand information to houses. And then I I know that there's a group called Los Preparados. Um, So we're going to move forward with that, too. Um, You know, we have a cooperators briefing that um, includes, um, you know, the city governments, the, you know, COAD inserts you know like multiple organizations neighborhood based yeah you know as close to the neighborhood as you can right well, i think it's representatives from like you know multiple multiple organizations right. so um where we brief them you know we've been briefing them twice a week we're going to be amping that up to three times a week because we're also going to increase our emergency operations um mm-hmm. to seven days a week um un- until we're able to get our testing centers established and so we're trying to ramp that up um so yeah those are so you know people um you know they've been getting invited to that uh to the those cooperative briefings if they have questions the schools are on it the healthcare entities are on it so uh it's a way to keep up with what's going on from the emergency operations center okay it's from the county and then uh at from the perspective of the queen of valley hospital yeah, our health system has actually been making it a priority. We've even set an inter-system GoFundMe page where all of us that work in amongst the 51 hospitals can donate to a fund that um, is going to be working at stopping the spread in homeless populations or um, shelter populations, really the most vulnerable that maybe doesn't always have the most funding. Number one, because it's the right thing to do, and number two, because that could become... Um, 
a, a, a big source of, of yeah. a big source of spread, and then it's affecting people without a lot of resources. Where do they self isolate? How do they get taken care of? So we're working internally on that um, as a big health system uh, across five states. But with the Queen, we're working with our community benefit and our executive director Dana Codron has been very on top of that. She works with Dr. Lucio's office. But we take care of people that once they're discharged from the hospital and might have more commute, might have more healthcare needs, might need extra help with social worker um, or case management. We go out to the shelters. We go where people are when they're homeless, um, when they're discharged from the hospital. Anybody that's at high risk um, or has limited socioeconomic means, um, we we enroll them in our community benefit program or our community outreach program when we can our care network and so those community based nurses social workers we're trying to pull them into this planning um, it's a little hard right now when we don't have widespread testing but for us that's going to be a really big focus is making sure that that our teams that do go out to those vulnerable populations are armed with information too do we know enough about it do we have enough data yet to dis- to determine whether uh, this whether COVID-19, uh, we, we know it disproportionately affects older people. Do we know whether it disproportionately affects people in certain communities, certain ethnic backgrounds, certain geographies, homeless populations? I mean, obviously, there's a great concern about the homeless population, but do we know enough? Right. I, I haven't heard um, that any ethnicity is affected one more than the other. What we've seen from an epidemiology standpoint is that it really does look like it's the elderly, the immune compromised, or those with underlying heart or lung conditions. Um, and, and one of the concerns with the homeless population is that frequently there is underlying um, medical conditions or less than adequate nutrition, um, less than adequate shelter when when you're um you know even if you have mild symptoms and you're sick it's it's no fun to not have a home and not feel well so what we want to do is really try and take care of that but i haven't heard that any one ethnicity is getting affected more than the other got it we are about out of time uh this has been a very fast hour i want to thank you very much uh dr dr amy harold uh from queen of the valley hospital Uh, Dr. Karen Relucio, who is the uh, Chief Public Health Officer for Napa County. Incredibly uh, informative and important conversation. And uh, I imagine we'll have you back uh, if we'll be living with this pandemic for quite a while. So thanks so much. Thank you. We appreciate being able to come share information publicly. So I appreciate that. Great. So um, that is going to do it for uh, this week's episode of uh, The Deep Dive. I want to thank you very much for joining us. We are especially happy to hear from you and welcome your suggestions. Uh, Please email us at deepdiveshow at windownmedia.com, Twitter and Instagram at deepdiveshow, uh, and like us on our Facebook page, uh, Deep Dive Show. I appreciate all the help I get from our friends here at KVON in Napa and my colleague, Antonio DeWalk. Uh, Thank you very much for joining us. I'm Larry Kamer. We'll see you next time.